founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Jenna Franconi, co-founder and managing director of Trade School a fast-growing company that is all about content and honing your craft. With over 15 years of social and digital marketing experience, having overseen earned and emerging media offerings for clients across retail, QSR, CPG, auto, and travel industries. She helps her clients navigate the changing landscape of social, providing strategic counsel across platforms, audience insights, content strategy, and influencer marketing campaigns that maximize investment. Trade School was born from an independent agency when they recognized the need for a different model to help clients scale the creation of genuinely effective content. Today, Trade School does just that with clients like the Home Depot, FedEx, and Sweetwater Brewing Company. Here to share all that knowledge and expertise is Jenna. So Jenna, thank you for being here. Let's get started. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, we took our stab at understanding where this company was born from. Uh, but in your own words, how'd this get started? Yeah, so we we actually spun off of a of an an integrated advertising agency that a lot of the group that co-founded the agency with me started at, um, and essentially we just sort of were looking ahead at the landscape and the industry, and a lot of things were changing at once. Um, one of those was the democratization of data. So suddenly, you know, all of the brands that we were working with were sitting on you know, gold mines of first party data, which allowed them to personalize a lot of the advertising, marketing and content they were creating, which, you know, unlocked what was essentially like a giant inventory that the, that the industry had never really seen before. Like the volume needs kind of changed overnight. And so we were really lucky. We had some great partners um, at the time, uh, really sophisticated retail brands that were kind of at the leading edge of that. And so we just said, this requires a totally different model. Like we have to re, we have to re-operationalize. We need different types of talent. We need, um, we wanted to bring production in-house. And so we, we spun off from that agency and created trade school in um, February of 2020, three weeks before COVID hit. So perfect timing, <laughs> um, but, but it was great. And we, we've since um, tripled in size in terms of employees and have grown a lot. We've been very lucky and had a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but um, we're essentially a modern advertising agency. We call ourselves a content shop because we're really focused on the, that scale um, of how to create all of that, you know, those assets that brands need essentially as publishers now. So um, yeah, that's, that's our kind of our origin story. Help me understand just because I, I don't know that industry as well, but when we say the democratization of, of data, what was yeah. it like before? And then what specifically changed that, that led to that? I think emerging media was probably the biggest player in that. Like if you think about, you know, Super Bowl commercials and TV commercials and radio, all of the mediums that sort of ruled the day for years and years, you know, there wasn't any way to measure that other than sort of like surveys and brand health studies and things like that. Um, but then when the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the Pinterest of the world all cropped up, obviously those um, those platforms are collecting a creepy, uh, you, some could say, amount of data, right, on individual characteristics and predictive data on consumers and, and brands themselves um, became much more sophisticated in what they were collecting in their own CRM systems and, and how they were, you know, tracking their own customers in much more sophisticated ways. So the combination of that brand level first party data and then sort of second and third party data that emerged in the last eight to 10 years really changed the way everybody marketed. So that, so, you know, essentially what went, went from a megaphone that you were sort of blasting out to right. the message became this like sort of sniper targeting opportunity. Um, and that, that unlocked a lot of con content inventory. What was the, what was the biggest challenge? Obviously you had COVID right there at the start, but you're also launching a new concept, a new brand. What was that biggest challenge to getting it off the ground? Honestly, I think, I think COVID certainly, I mean, that, that was such an acute, um, I mean, we literally, we were 
days away from signing a lease on a, a 50,000 square foot warehouse space that we were converting into a production studio and an office. And I mean, we pressed pause on that. Thank goodness that ended up being one of our, our smartest business decisions. Um, but just the, the general uncertainty of what, I mean, it's, it, we've all sort of processed the collective, you know, trauma that we've all been through in the last two years, but in the moment, it just felt like, you know, I had just convinced all of these people to do this with me. They were all of, you know, a lot of colleagues that I'd worked with for years and years, and we were all like taking this big, brave step. And then to sort of watch the world tilt on its proverbial access was literally terrifying. And I felt very responsible. And I felt, you know, I was, I was tenacious and was like, we're going to do this no matter what, but it was truly terrifying. And I think just staring down that uncertainty was one of the toughest parts of getting started. And, and honestly, you know, I think a lot of people now could retell their stories of what they did and, you know, act like they had some brilliant plan that they were like, and then we pivoted and it was this, you know, it all, but, but the truth was we just like white knuckled it. And I think, you know, we made a ton of tiny decisions every, you know, it kind of just did the next right thing. And, um, there was no roadmap. There was no, I just remember being like, there is no book I can read. There is no mentor. I can look like no one had ever been through anything like that. So I would say the hardest part of getting started was, was sort of thinking, you know, I was living in one world and then very quickly, you know, we, everything changed. So, um, so culturally that was also very difficult, right. To sort of like calm the waters while I myself was, was certainly panicking behind closed doors. Um, but we, we were, we came together as a team. So we started the shop with 43 employees. Um, so there was a lot of transparency. There was a lot of conversation about what we were facing. There was a lot of showing up for each other in very different ways. So, um, Challenge wise, I would say that uncertainty of COVID, you know, hitting at the exact moment that we were starting the shop was um, extraordinarily challenging. But now, again, with the benefit of two, two years, two and a half years later, I have the perspective of understanding that that was a huge blessing because we all went through that together and, and it was very foundational to the culture of, of what we built. Yeah, it's, I got to imagine in hindsight, it's, it was a huge bonding moment kind of being forged in that, yeah. that fire together, that bunker, you know, type of thing. Um, you know, back to when you said no one's ever been here before. I remember at the beginning of this podcast, I, I interviewed a mentor of mine. Uh, his name's Randy Dobbs. And my, the point was he was a, how would you, how do I describe him? Uh, he was an executive at GE. Uh, he took over Phillips Medical at one point. He, he was a turnaround CEO. Like his specialty was coming into a place that was failing, turning it around and, and making it amazing again. And so I was like, he's the perfect person. Like he, he navigates crazy situations like this all the time. Get on there. He gives a few principles, but then he stops and says, just so you know, I've never experienced anything like this before. And I don't think any of us have. Yeah. And so he's like, I can give you some good ideas, but just so you know, we're all in this together. No one's been in this before. And that was both scary and comforting to me <laughs> was yeah. him basically saying like, I've been through a lot. I've been through 08. I've been through all this stuff, right. but we've not done this before. And right. I think we're all figuring it out together. And that was the scary place for me. And so I wonder, you know, for you, you had that Jerry Maguire moment. It sounds like of who's coming with me. You go start okay. your own thing. Uh, but you find yourself immediately in uncharted territory. How, how did you emotionally stay at least level-headed, you know, mm -hmm. I know you're still scared, but you didn't freak yeah. out and make any yeah. truly horrible decisions. How did you do that? Um, well, I, a couple things. One is I have compared motherhood and leadership often, because to me, there's so many things that feel the same. And, you know, my kids, I have three children who are young under the age of seven and were younger, obviously during the pandemic. And so we were all thrust into this world where they were home. They, you know, went, went to school one day and got picked up and never, you know, never went back. Um, and so I was really thoughtful and deliberate about how they experienced the pandemic, especially in the beginning. Like I wanted them to know enough about what was happening and be truthful with them, but I also wanted to, them to feel safe. And I wanted them to feel like the adults have got this and we can do this together. And, you know, I, I didn't, I, I was very careful that they, that their world felt, um, 
you know, as stable as it could feel. Hmm. And that's a bird. That's a huge burden, right? Like how to do that. And, um, in ways again, that balance being honest and transparent, but also just helping them feel like they were safe so that they themselves could thrive. Um, I felt like it was our responsibility as leaders. And there was a group of us who did this, um, with our company. It was like, we had, we could, you know, it's like, what are the, what's that analogy with the duck? Like we could be paddling like hell underneath, but we needed, we needed to be calm and project a sense of like, guys, we've got this, um, to the, to the organization. And I, I genuinely believed that we did. Um, so that was the other part. I, I was truly optimistic despite how difficult all of those early days were. I, I genuinely believed like we could do this. We will get through this. Um, and I've said this before, it's kind of a cheesy notion, but uh, someone once told me that like when it rains, when there's a big storm, animals either like cower under a tree and like wait, wait it out, or they run literally into the rain to get through it quicker. Like they run mm. into it and or to try to run through it and get to the other side. And so I sort of used that analogy with the organization at the time. And I said, guys, like we're a team of rain runners. We're going into this, we're going to get wet, but we're going to come out the other side and, and then we'll be through it. And, and I honestly feel like that's what we did. Um, and, and people, you know, certainly there were folks who, who had, you know, major struggles personally throughout, I mean, the whole team, it was such a difficult time to be a human being, right? Um, but feeling like we were showing up for each other and showing up for the organization and feeling, you know, taken care of was a really big part of how we navigated that. We worked very, very hard and we were tenacious and there was a ton of grit, um, but it was balanced with a whole lot of grace. And also, you know, again, from, from the top, just sort of the group of us who are leading the organization communicating, like, we've got this. Did you so have that kind of me balanced? Yeah. Did you all have kind of clients that came with you? So you had immediate work or did you start from scratch and you were having to hunt for fresh clients during that time? Both. So we had one giant client that we sort of built the organization around, um, there was starts and stops with that client, given their you know of official um, essential retailer status. So there was again moments of panic where like this whole thing may go up in smoke, or you know, and then three weeks later, you know, the government deemed them an essential retailer, and we were back in business. So it's like you know, it was it was a wild um, time. But we also pitched some very big new clients during that time, which again nobody had ever pitched virtually. There was all sorts of um, you know, business development was completely different, but we were very, very fortunate. I mean, I say fortunate, we worked very hard and we're very fortunate to bring sure. on a lot of big new clients during those first few months. And, um, and the organization was sort of built part of our DNA and, and culture is iteration and, um, you know, nimble flexibility. So everyone transitioned to work from home very, very quickly, like overnight, it was like, we didn't skip a beat. Um, and, you know, production is a big part of our business. And so we were also very um, bullish about getting back into the studio as quickly as possible so that we could continue to shoot and roll cameras. So um, both of those things happened. I mean, we were back in studio, I think in May with a really safe COVID protocol and, and um, you know, obviously a bunch of rigor had gone into that, but we kind of like we just kept rolling and, and focused heavily on, on like, we're not going to pause new business efforts. We're not going to react in fear. We're going to continue to be proactive. I'd love to hear more about the iteration. You said you, you, you yeah. all kind of practice iteration and nimble flexibility. How does that philosophy work its way into what you all are doing? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the ethos of, of the, the shop right now and, 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 what, what we built it on is like, we're built for what's next. So part of, I mean, again, we're not very precious about things. Like we, as you know, we see around the corner, see a white space, build for that, and, and then try to scale that offering and, um, and you know, that, that skill set to clients. But we're also always looking ahead. So things like Web3 right now, sustainability, like big things that are sort of happening on a macro level, we're also preparing the shop to adapt very quickly to be able to answer that need that clients are going to have. So when I say iteration, like we will develop a process get it nailed. And then, and, you know, again, there's, there's a foundation of rigor that you have to have as an organization. And I'm not saying we just like reinvent the wheel all the time, but we're not, we, we move very, very quickly. And like, if we, we 
are not precious about, okay, well, we, we just set up this new offering and now it's changed. We're kind of going to sit here and hold on to our staplers. And, you know, it's, it's like, keep moving, keep moving, iterate. So, so that flexibility is very necessary right now in marketing because it's changing, you know, at, at a clip that is, we've never seen before. Um, and we're lucky in that we're independent and we're still fairly small. We're like around 120 ish employees right now where we can kind of turn on a dime and that, so that iteration, that flexibility ethos is, is kind of built into everything that we do. And we're very, um, clear with the organization that like what we look like right now, we, we, we probably won't recognize a year from now, like we'll be doing different things and, um, and focusing on, you know, the changing landscape and how we can, again, how we can sort of like see around the corner, get there first and then keep moving. I love that. I know that part of the iteration process, the, one of the critical elements of the iteration is being able to get some sort of feedback where you, you're able to see whether the idea is working, what part it's working, what part's not working. So you can make the next iteration. What does that look like for you? Like, how do you, how do you test the ideas? How do you get the feedback? Well, ultimately we're a creative enterprise. I mean, we make pictures, words, and videos for clients. I mean, and that's, that's what kind of all, all advertising and marketing agencies do to a certain extent. Um, what I think is interesting in our specific industry is that creativity for creativity's sake is often the goal of, of some agencies and organizations, meaning they're chasing sort of glory or awards or like they can't wait to show off this thing that they've made versus I think our creative product is really rooted in driving business results for our clients, which is quite honestly, you know, far less sexy for like a, you know, a, a, a young creative who's just come out of ad school and is really interested in building their book and getting the big spot, whether that's, you know, the Super Bowl ad or whatever it is, we're more interested. We view creativity as, um, the, the, like the canvas that allows businesses to connect with their customers and, and that, that canvas has changed so dramatically. So it's, it's, you know, a pin on Pinterest to us is as valuable of a creative output as a TV commercial. Um, and so because of the way it could connect with a customer at that moment, at that time that they need, you know, whether it's a message or a product or information, whatever it is. So I think when, when we talk about iteration, we, again, I keep saying we're not precious, but it's because we believe in like beautiful craft and guardianship over a brand and, um, you know, creative, the power of creative, but we're also like, but if it doesn't connect with that audience, or if the message is, is, you know, if we're just talking to ourselves here, then like, there's no, that we've done the wrong thing. So I think when we talk about iteration, like the feedback loop is often, driven by what the customers are telling us, right? Like if they're, I mean, I, I make this joke all the time, but my five-year-old was at my parents' house the other, like a couple of weekends ago. And he, a commercial, we have all streaming services. So they just have their little iPads and, you know, commercial free Disney plus, et cetera. But a, they were just watching a, um, a show at, at my parents' house and a commercial came on and it was literally so upsetting to my son that he just like burst into tears. Like he was like, what is, what is interrupting Bluey? What is happening? And he was just like sobbing. And I was like, William, that's called a commercial, bud. Like yes. it's, it's okay. And so again, like this, there, you know, as people's, um, as, I mean, there's new generations and the way that they consume content, the way that they engage with the world, that is the feedback loop that's ultimately driving our iteration process, right? So I think we feel very strongly about meeting people where they are and how they're engaging with that creative versus I think there's plenty of, um, you know, older shops who are dead set on like, no, this is what creative should be where we are, we will continue to use the megaphone. Um, and that's, that's like, that's how we want to put pictures, words, and videos out in the world. And so I think for us, iteration is just driven by consumers. I love how you said we're not precious about things, which I find to be hard in general, but also hard, especially if you're more of a creative type person, because we do get somewhat heart attached to our ideas and uh, our instincts and our expressions. And so is that something that's natural for you in the organization or something that you've had to kind of work at, especially in the creative world, to not be 
too precious about the ideas or the, or the creativity you have. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's been a big challenge and, um, an awesome opportunity for us. So, so traditionally creatives, um, you know, go to ad school, they want to create these big, you know, it used to be the Holy grail was like the Super Bowl commercial. Um, but now the world has just changed so significantly and the creative canvas has changed so significantly that it requires, um, just a different orientation to creative, right? So we all make pictures, words, and videos. That's what every, everyone in our industry ultimately, you know, marketing and advertising ultimately does. Um, but I think we've built an organization around, you know, really embracing the new creative canvas, meaning, you know, a pin that someone engages with that, you know, is a, what's a good example, like a, a nursery scene that, you know, a new mom is searching for in the middle of the night while she's trying to kind of plan her nursery for her, her upcoming baby. You know, that is as meaningful of a connection, as emotional of a connection to a brand as, you know, a very tearful PNG spot that airs during the Olympics, right? Like those are, it's all, all ways of connecting and communicating. And I think because the new generation, this new generation, multiple new generations, but uh, are, are engaging with content and brands in the world in very different ways. Um, it requires being less precious about like, we're not creating, you know, always a 60 second video that will air, you know, that you can point to and say, I made that, you know, it, these, these, the proliferation of this content is so intense and it lives sometimes in just for just a moment, you know, and it, it's, but where, how it connects with the consumers is ultimately our, our, kind of North star. And so, um, if you're precious about that, it unlocks all sorts of awesome creative opportunities versus I think what is sort of the more traditional way of looking at it. Like I just want to make the, you know, the super bowl spot. Yeah. I'd love to, to shift the conversation to learn a little bit more about you and kind of your journey as you know, being one of the, the leaders of this organization, going through everything that you've been through so far. Um, what have been some of the biggest lessons that you've learned le leading an organization like this and seeing it grow and scale? Yeah. I mean, I am absolutely not one of those people that like grew up being like, I want to start a company. I'm, I'm, I am not your classic entrepreneur whatsoever. In fact, I, I don't have a very high risk profile. So the way that we started this organization was, was or a risk tolerance, I mean. Um, so the way that we started this organization was sort of perfect for me because it start, we started with uh, you know, we spun off from my previous agency, which is still, a, you know, now we all sit under the same parent company. Um, so we spun off, we had an account that we brought with us. We had a group of people that I had worked with and built, um, you know, earlier iterations of this with for years. So I, um, it was sort of like, dressing up as a, as a startup founder, but with like a safety net, which was perfect for me. Um, and I'm really honest about that. I, I was never someone who was like, I I'm, I'm always gonna, you know, I'm going to be a founder. So that has been really interesting in terms of the, the nuances of what starting an organization like that looks like. Right. So I've been, um, I've been very lucky that we, a group of probably six or seven of us worked together for between five and 10 years um, collectively. And, and we were the group that sort of saw this opportunity and said, hey, this is, um, we got to do things differently. Like there's a better way for us to do this thing. And there's an opportunity for us to do it as its own organization. And I, I definitely led that charge, but I'm also a, um, like a very group leadership oriented person. So I, I learned early on to, to find people who are more talented, smarter, and better than me and surround myself with them, hire all of them, and then kind of get out of their way. Um, so that's also been, I mean, we, we've done it together, but I've been very lucky to, to do it with some of the best people I've ever worked with and that I trust and that, you know, trust me and, and we built it together. So I definitely am not like that sort of founder archetype that you sometimes um, see you know, in, in terms of starting organizations. And then I think what's been so challenging for me, what's been, well, what's been interesting for me, I'll say, is I was really worried about like a lot of the business elements of starting this organization, like 
financial acumen, PL management, strategic, you know, vision casting, all like sort of what you would get in an MBA, which I do not have, nor do I want to have. Um, but I was really worried about all of those things. And I think what's been interesting is that those things for the most part have been the easy parts and the hardest part has been people. And, you know, again, we, we started this thing right when, you know, the world changed fundamentally forever, right? So who we were in February, 2020 is very different than who we are now as, as humans. Um, and so things like mental health and, you know, social cultural issues and, um, work life, I don't even want to say balance, but like work life integration and, and the humanization of, of the workforce, like those have been things that I have struggled the most with because they're so important to me and to the organization. They're also usually nine times out of 10 in direct conflict with how to run a very profitable organization. Right. And so finding the right ways to make, to strike that balance and to keep the organization healthy so that we can, you know, continue to grow and have job stability and all those things, but support people in this very new world of, you know, of being human has been the, the biggest challenge for me and the biggest and the biggest blessing and opportunity as well. Absolutely. That is probably the most common. That's probably the most common reflection I've heard on this podcast mm -hmm. is that of course the business is challenging and, but it, it, it can operate a little more mechanically where you get to understand its pieces and those kinds of things, but humans are complex and there's a variety of blessings and challenges and all that kind of stuff. The more people you have, the more, uh, giftings and chaos you have in a sense. And so I liked how you put the often competing or what feels like competing values inside of the organization. Do I take care of the person in this situation? Is that taking away from the organization's needs? Um, have you found, are there any examples of, of some areas where you found how to integrate those? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one thing that I have learned is that if you look at things on paper, it's very difficult to make decisions in favor of humans, right? Like you're like this, you know, again, nine times out of 10, it's gonna cost more to support your staff in the way that you wanna support them. But if you look at, you know, opportunity cost and things like retention and loyalty and, um, you know, how invested an employee is in their, their day-to-day -day work in your organization, those things cannot be quantified or measured as easily. Um, so one example we had was related to, we recently sort of overhauled our benefits for the organization and they were what I would describe as okay to good. And now they are, you know, in the good to excellent realm. And again, on paper, these are all, th these are things like sabbaticals for long-term employees, better parental leave, um, you know, work from home stipends, um, mental health stipends, things that, that we, you know, again, pretty all encompassing pet support for people who have, um, you know, dog children, all of these things. So if you look at them on paper, it's like, okay, this is going to cost a heck of a lot more than the previous iteration. But when you think about, you know, how much those things are going to change people's lives and have them, I mean, this is, this is a pretty obvious example, but obviously, you know, they will be more invested in the organization if they have the time that they need to, to be with their new child or to take time off, to take care of a sick relative, whatever it is, all of those things, if they feel ultimately that the organization shows up for them when they need them to, then I feel, and, and a lot of leaders feel that then, you know, those employees will show up for the organization. And I have found that to be true in spades. Um, so again, if you look at a balance sheet, you're like, ah, I don't know, this is, a lot, this is a lot of investment, but ultimately like it pays off in such different ways. And I just feel like that's the balance that we've been trying to strike both at the parent company of my organization and our level, which is like, how do we take care of people how do we, how do we manage, you know, by the way, none of the client demands have changed at all. Right. So like the great resignation, inflation, all the like things that have happened over the last two years, like the, the client demands are still very static. Like they're, the bar is very high. So how you meet that bar just has to change. Like we, what we used to be able to do with 20 employees, now we need 25, you know? And so, and, and understanding that that's a financial impact and, and being okay with that is also a part of our, you know, 
our decision-making process. So I think, I think the hardest part for people is throwing out the old rule book because for yeah. many years there were things you, like, if this, then that, that will happen. Right. Like you, you can maintain X margin if you do X, Y, and Z. And, and like all of those equations have just changed. They're not the same anymore. How many hours a week people work, how, you know, much time off people need in any given year, how, um, you know, a million factors, but the variables have all changed. So I, I, sort of surrendered very early to like, we, we need new equations and we've been building those since. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I couldn't agree more. So I, you know, we talked about this before the podcast, but this is similar, this is very in line with the work that my company does. And we just actually got approved for a trademark for the phrase people profit chain. And it's exactly what we're talking about where we show awesome. the connection between your people profiting and your business profiting, mm -hmm. because there's this feeling and it feels very, logical that I have to pick either my business is going to profit at the expense of my people or my people are going to profit at the expense of my business. And we show the very real chain reaction between investing adequately in your people and all the way down to the profitability of the business. And so it relieves a lot of founders to know, man, this actually works now where they probably have great questions at times is it's not as simple as just throwing money at something. Right. Right. Because we've all invested in stuff that didn't do anything, you know, you're like, I thought this would this would move the needle and people would be happier and they weren't or that right. this would create greater, you know, customer service and it didn't. And so we have to be thoughtful about it and we have to to think and listen what would really move the needle. What do our people really need? But if we do do it, it certainly does lead to a better business. Um, so anyways, I love that you're saying that one of the things that we talked about as well is if the demand's not going away, right? If the demand is going to stay the same and even increase in the future mm -hmm. and we can't do anything about that and we don't want anything we don't want that to change because demand means our business right. is working exactly the variable we can work with is capacity mm -hmm. and so either capacity looks like hiring more people or increasing the capacity of the current people we have right, right. because the stress is when there's more demand than there is capacity and the fun is when we have more capacity than we have demand Right. When we, and so it's like, that's where I see everybody. And that's what we help people do is go, how do we increase the capacity so that we can actually rise up to the demand mm -hmm. instead of feel like the demand is crushing us. Right. Because that's when it gets fun. Um, so anyways, I think that's, that's amazing that you all have, have seen that are putting that investment in there. And I got to imagine it's been crazy tripling in the last two years, just the even texture of the organization. You know, yeah. going from, we all know each other to, I, I, I probably, you know, met everyone that came in the door to, holy crap, there's whole groups of people that have never met other groups of people. Yeah. That's just a wildly different world to live in. So what's that been like with that rapid of a growth in two years? Yeah. It's been a, another like massively interesting and challenging part of this thing. And people warned me, I will say there were books, there were plenty of books and plenty of advice about this. They said that I've heard of like the hundred person tipping point and like all these various, you know, this moment in an organization is when you, you'll lose your grip on the culture or when you will, you'll suddenly not know everybody's name anymore. And I, I again, I was, I was like, okay, okay, well, you know, let's navigate this. Let's see. But um, now add, COVID on top of that, where, where you have a lot, you know, a virtual work from home environment for the most part. And it's, it is very different. Um, but I will say it. So yes, that has sort of been an, uh, one of the more surprising parts of things for me, which is making sure, you know, again, we started with a group of people who had largely worked together for a long time, making sure that you hire the right people. And again, this is in every business book. It's not like this is, you know, new news, but Hiring the right people to scale an organization is something that I have ruthlessly prioritized and have gotten wrong in a few cases. Um, but you scaling a, a you know an ethos, scaling a trust, scaling all the things that were sort of that we took for granted with the group that started it has been very difficult to to find you know to bring on new people in a virtual environment to, to make sure that they're aligned with the organization. We've been much more successful 
in that ironically in year three than we were in year two. And we've, we have amazing lieutenants now across, you know, leading departments and leading groups and various accounts. Um, but it, it takes time to find the right people. And another piece of advice I got along the way was when you know it's not right, move on quickly, which is again, hard to do when you're in hyper growth mode, because any sort of vacuum, any sort of, you know, empty seat is a really tough, um, you know, it's felt very much from a business standpoint. And so I would say culturally, like also just explaining who we are to everybody that walks in the door is, was much easier when we were in an office every day. Right. And now is, it was already challenging, but now it's infinitely more challenging in a virtual environment. So I've realized that like, that is something, again, I take for granted. I'm like, everybody knows how, what trade school means and how it started. And, and that's just not true. So saying it, you know, uh, communicating it early and often has been really important for us and, um, and making sure that like, there are opportunities for people to like experience the culture of leadership and the organization outside of their day-to-day -day jobs has been really important for us. So we're trying to, you know, not just like, Oh, let's get together for a summer party or an open house, but just like, whether that's, you know, um, like random groups of people who we get together to have, you know, um, this virtual coffee, people that would never normally be in a zoom room together or, um, you know, skip level conversations with various leaders, like making sure that we are communicating that through, um, has been really important for us. But I, I mean, it's something I, I've yet to see anyone completely nailing it right now, especially at our size. Like, I'm like, how do you build a culture when you, you know, all, all you have is a screen in front of you. And, and it go, we have a high, we have an office and a studio. So we have opportunities for people to be together, but we also have a lot of folks who sit in different States and everything now, which is again, a benefit of, of how much everything has changed. But I keep waiting for like the magic bullet Forbes story or whatever to, you know, be like, here it is, here's just what we need to do. And there's no, there is no magic answer. So it's just, it's a lot of like continuous communication and making sure that that, you know, the, the DNA of the place actually makes its way through the organization after, you know, again, after a certain point, that is, that's not something that just organically happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Now you mentioned earlier, uh, some reference to, you know, I read this in the books. Yeah. You know, I've heard people tell me this, uh, this is a question I do like to ask and almost collect as a connoisseur of, um, information and what is helping people and what's not helping people. Is there a book in particular that you have personally found helpful as a founder? What, what is something that you would say, man, I would recommend this to other people. Yeah. I have maybe a controversial answer to this question. So, so I actually hate business books and self-help books for the most part and, yeah. and, and like avoid them like the plague and has been a source of professional anxiety for many people around me. However, my dad, who is in healthcare sales and, um, has a very corporate job, my whole life would say things to me often. He was a big reader of all of those sort of corporate books. And he would always say things to me and growing up, they, you know, they really resonated. I never realized until I was older that I, I was like, Oh, this is from Stephen Covey's. Seven <laughs> you know, like I just thought my dad said it, but, um, yeah. I would say that the, the, the single biggest piece of advice that I have kept forefront through all of this, which I thought was from my dad is actually from Stephen Covey is the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And like ruthless prioritization of what we, I am here and we are here to do as an organization has been a North star for me because there has been there's always a fire. There's always small things that need your attention. There are always people who are asking for you to weigh in on something there. And if, when I have lost sight of the main thing, I have found that the organization very easily can get off track. So I, 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 I have not, I'm being really honest, read that whole book, but that piece of advice from seven habits of highly effective people has changed the way that I've led. Um, and I think my dad, I think he taught it to me when I was like six or seven. <laughs> Uh, I'm so curious, uh, why, why the aversion to, to books? You know, this is probably, I don't, I, I wish I had a good answer. I just like, I have always led with my gut and I feel like I don't like rule books. I don't, I mean, part of the reason why I was able, I'm sort of a challenger person in spirit. And so 
I often am like, oh, cool. That worked for them, but it's different for me. Or I feel this way. I, I almost like read them and, and immediately start arguing with them in my head. And so I feel like that's not a productive, <laughs> maybe not a productive use of my time, but I, um, I, Sarah Blakely and Jesse Itzler, I don't know if you know, the, the, yes. they, they talk about this often where, which is like, there is no rule book. Like they led often through gut and through, um, you know, their own personal instinct. And again, I am not by any means suggesting that I know better than all of these business leaders. I have just felt like when I am true to what I believe in, in my particular circumstance or this organization or these people that it's, I've watched people sort of follow rule books off a cliff. And I, I prefer to sort of take I observe from the world around me and, and situations and observing other organizations and the decisions they've made and the, and what their leaders have done versus like here, here's seven versions of this, or here's 10 rules for this. Like that has always sort of bugged me. Um, yeah. so again, controversial answer, hot take there, but that's no, the I love it. I love it. Uh, one, I just enjoy controversial takes in general, but two, I think, I think the idea of rule books is spot on. I think if that's the way that we're approaching content or we're approaching business, we're yeah. always, we're always going to be in more pain. Right. But I do think if I were to push back, I yeah. would say other perspectives, like the one your dad was able to give you did something to sharpen your instincts. Absolutely. Right? Yes. So like that concept that Covey passed along, which he got from somewhere, right? We all yeah. get it from somewhere and pass it along. Of course comes across and you're like, I did, I had that instinct that I need to keep the main thing, the main thing, but seeing that confirmed it for me, or it sharpens in the sparring, even you like sparring with the book, sparring with the idea, there is a sharpening in that, in that process. Cause you have to defend why you disagree with that in right. your own head, you know? And yeah. so that's, that's kind of how, how I think about it. It's like, I'm not looking for any rule book. I like the stories and I like yeah. the, the ideas that I'm able to play with that either sharpen my instincts or, or challenge them in some kind of way, kind of mirror, uh, what I'm thinking and I have to play with it for a little bit. And so that yeah. would be my only, my only push. No, I think on that's me. great. And I, I, I enjoy like professional, you know, peer networks and things like, I love hearing people's exactly what this podcast is. I love right. to hear people talk about the experiences that they went through and the way they made decisions or what they would do differently. I think for whatever reason, the, the like idea like of the book, format, yeah, the format of it, yeah. it, it again, just sort of, um, drives me nuts, but I agree. I think it has sharpened. There's been so much of that, that I've taken over the years and so many mentors and so many peers yeah. and, that have given me great, you know, advice and terrible advice that have, that have shaped, you know, both paths forward. Yeah. Okay. So last question before we get into the lightning round, okay. what's something that you right now are currently passionate about? Passionate can be, yes, I'm excited or interested, inspired, uh, that you think would either help someone accelerate their business growth or accelerate their personal growth. I think I would say that right now, I'm really passionate about the idea of like humanization of business and leaders. And so, you know, I think you and I both grew up in a world where there were, you know, the idea of an executive or the idea of who you were at work was very different than who you were at home. Sure. Or like there was that, there was, there was a distinction or bifurcation between those two worlds. And again, silver, like I'm trying to think of all the positive things that COVID has done for the world, but I feel like it just crashed that wall straight down. And the way that we bring our whole selves to work these days, like they're, you know, again, not just the virtual environment, but just everything we've been through as a culture, as a nation, as, you know, industries has really, I find that the humanization of leadership and, and corporate culture right now is a hugely beneficial opportunity. So that's everything from like, I had a homeroom, we call them homerooms agency all yesterday. And my daughter, I told you earlier was home six, my sick yesterday, my four-year-old. And I thought about like keeping her out of frame and, you know, I would had to present and, and I just was like, well, she's homesick and I'm here. So she's sitting on my lap and, you know, she interrupted and, and, you know, said, I like your yellow shirt to the whole organization, but she, I was like, I'm fine. I'm the president of this company and I'm have a four-year-old on my lap and I want people to see that. Right. And so whether that helps someone in the future feel like they can be, you know, more transparent about their 
work-life integration, et cetera. Um, and then just also like all of the trends that are happening in our, our world culturally right now, like talking about diversity and inclusion, that's a huge part of our organization. And it's a huge, um, initiative for us overall and people bringing them their whole selves to work, people talking about things that maybe they didn't feel comfortable talking about two years ago, I think is a hugely, um, I'm just very passionate about that. Like the dimensions of people have changed. So ultimately we're all human beings and businesses I have learned are mostly just about people for, you know, there's, there's the thing that they make and the way that they do it, but largely they're about people. And so if you can bring more of yourself to, to leadership or to work every day, I think that's a very positive thing. And if you can give space for your teams to do that, I also think that that's a, a, a beautiful change that we're undergoing right now that I don't think um, we've really ever seen before. Oh, I a hundred percent agree. It is. And we're in the, the beautiful messiness of that, right? That we don't know what, how we, how we do it. We don't know what it means to bring our whole self because we're so used to the separation of church and state, you know, the separation of business and home and sure. everything needs to be neat and tidy. I just always think about, and I don't blame them at all. I think it's hilarious. That guy who was doing the BBC interview yes. and the kid comes in and the wife runs in and grabs the kid and drags it out. Yeah. You know, it's like they That's were trying the metaphor. Yeah. It's, it's like, they're like, I always think about the wizard of Oz, you know, when the curtain gets pulled back exactly. and he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. He's trying to like keep that illusion intact but something exactly. ripped that illusion and i think that's what's happened to us it's kind of forced us to say we are human i know we all like to dress up and put our best face on but yep. like we got great days we got tough days we've got things going on outside of this and learning how to work with that has been challenging but beautiful at the same time i totally agree now i'll stop there we're, we're running short on time okay. i want to make sure we use the most of your time okay okay so let's get to our five lightning round questions okay. these are five questions that we've asked every founder so far on the podcast we'll start with number one if you could ingrain just one message into your entire organization what would it be oh i know this one because we say it all the time uh there's no problem we can't solve together i like that where did that come from it came from when we we're starting the shop. A, a few of us were sitting like in our little basement area that we had carved out to, um, to get the organization running. And we, it was like, this is a problem. This is a problem. This is a problem. We were all sitting there focused on the problems and overwhelmed. And my co-founder actually said it. He said, there's no, you guys, we've seen this movie before. Like there's no problem we can't solve. And so we wrote it on the wall for the first six months and we pointed to it a lot. Heck yeah. All right. Question number two. What is the single best advice you've gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? Okay. Best advice. I think the best advice I ever got about starting a business was jump and the net will appear. That was yeah. an important one for me. I really, I'm like I said, I don't have a high risk tolerance and I, I can get very, you know, a little nervous about things and just, just jumping and, you know, you might get a concussion on the way down, but the, the net will appear is, and I have found that to be very, very true. Um, worst advice, and this has made its way in a few different forms and it's never this blatant, but essentially some version of like, try to be something other than yourself, either as a leader or an organization. And I've had a few people in my orbit, uh, impart that. And I, and I've done that in the past, you know, I've tried to, uh, there's been, there have been times when I've done that and it was a miserable failure. So I would just say that that was, you know, I've learned to be very, very true to myself and the organization to be true to itself. All right. Question number three, what causes you the most stress or worry leading your organization right now? We just talked about it. I think how hard it is to be a human and how messy and beautiful that is. And, um, I mean, I, I wake up in the middle of the night a lot, like worrying about my people, how we could be doing more for them, how, um, how we balance all of this. And, and, you know, it's a particular moment in time. I do think, I think, like you said, we're in the middle of it. And I think easier, I say that hopefully, but easier times are coming. So um, my stress is not in numbers or growth or the PNL it's in people. Totally makes sense. Okay. Question number four, what's the BHAG, the big, oh. hairy, audacious goal for this organization? Yeah. I mean, my CEO would probably kill me for saying this. I don't, I, I, I don't, I have, of course, our business goals of like, I want to be X 
you know, million in top line by X year. But truthfully, I want to create an organization where people want to come to work every day. And I believe that financial and industry success will follow from there. Because again, I think businesses are largely just made up of humans who want, who liked, you know, if they like what they're doing and like doing it together, then good things happen from there. I love that. I was telling my team the other day, I want it to be true even as we keep getting bigger and bigger for people to say, yeah, but no one's having as much fun as us. Mm-hmm. That that's an interesting value that has emerged in my life. Of course we want to be successful. That's the only way we keep the doors open and be right. professionally satisfied. But also I want to make sure that no one's having more fun than us, right? That this that. is actually a joy, a joy to be here as well. Uh, okay. So number five, this is kind of a total break from the business questions and just a fun creative question for you. So if you could hop into a DeLorean, and you get to go back to your past, not necessarily to change the events of or anything, but you do get to pass along a message to your younger self. When would you go back in your life and what encouragement or message would you pass along to a younger version of yourself? Oh, that's such a good one. Maybe this, maybe this is like two on the nose, but I think I would go back to high school because I, that was a place where I was very, I was the least sure of myself. I I had like ideas about who I was and what I wanted to be. And I felt very much like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't an outcast or anything like that, but I, I was very like, I wanted to do things differently. I didn't care about the same things that everybody cared about. And I would love to tell her like, lean into all of that sooner rather than pushing some of that down and trying to fit in with the crowd or, you know, follow a certain rule book or roadmap because I have, I have been the same me my whole life. I mean, of course we all evolve, but you know, I was actually like more like myself as a six-year-old than I was, you know, in some of my teens and early twenties. And so I would just say like to tell her to be true to herself because it's all going to be great. And, um, and the sooner, you know, I lean into that, the better. Come on. And the sooner you experience freedom, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's better living in your own skin and you end up being more of a gift to the world around you when you do that. Totally. So good. My kids that. I know, but the sad, I know we're, we're supposed to end right there, but just mentioning that the saddest part to me is, is seeing where that's already creeping in. I know. And you you can't help it. But like the first time that I see them comparing themselves to the kid in their class and doubting something about them. And I'm like, no, don't, I don't want that. That wasn't there yesterday. Like what is happening? You know, I'm in the exact same boat and it, it's starting and I'm, I'm, I'm like, for dear life, trying to figure out how I can, you know, teach them that earlier. So well, if you figure it out, I'll, let me know. I'll let you know. <laughs> Please. Thank you so much, Drew. Awesome. Well, Jenna, this has been amazing. Thank you for taking your time, sharing your wisdom and your story with us. It's been truly valuable. It's awesome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it so much. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.